But you know what? I woke up this morning. And I thought, you know what? I could. I, f- I woke up feeling like crap, and I thought, you know what? I would love to do today is just record a podcast and that talk just for two hours. <laughs> a tonic. So, uh, just FYI. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special London edition of Blood, Sweat, and Silver, which is a podcast that covers the afterliving, which is a book that I wrote. My name is Fernando Rivera, and my co-host is not here. Sadly, Mr. Matt Steele could not make it across the pond. But instead of Matt, I have another co-host. Oh, me! I, Mike Hoffman! Mike Hoffman! That's right. Mike Hoffman uh, lives in London currently. He's originally from Edinburgh in Scotland. So he is a wonderful person to have to talk about the book because he provides a perspective that does not come from Los Angeles, which is where you've been hearing, uh, which is where the majority of the people you've been hearing on the podcast are from. Yeah, sorry, Steele. I don't mean to take your seat, but here I am. So I've got a bit of Edith in me, a bit of the london ones a bit of tom <laughs> a bit of tom that's yeah. right so yeah uh mike tell us about yourself and well by day i am a very boring businessman and i work for a consulting company and by all times other than the day i am very much creative and into all things media so i'm a writer i'm a songwriter a very good writer i've read some of your stuff thank you i uh, i'm a musician but you have a degree in music I I do in music production. Music production, yeah, and a degree in psychology. You provide a very interesting pers- perspective in the world of uh, fantasy because you're a big gamer. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I've spent uh, as long as I can remember just immersed in the kind of role playing games of the '90s and and that RPGs. You R- mean? Uh, oh, oh, sorry. Oh, did you just school me I did. there? Thank like you the, for the education. <laughs> it's like the one terminology that I know in gaming. Are you familiar with JRPG? Yeah, yeah, uh huh, yeah, yeah, uh huh. Bridges can fill you in on what that <laughs> yeah, is probably Matt, Matt Bridges the other nerd we had on the podcast um no I'm not what is JRPG oh that's Japanese role-playing game oh that so, see now that's a little racist because Matt Bridges is half Japanese well no I'm Matt Bridges is a gamer please okay. um we have JRPG which is Japanese CRPG which is old school American kind of computer like point and click mm-hmm type stuff and now western rpgs and western rpgs have been really catching up um with story based stuff but really traditionally the the japanese games were where you were getting deep into fantasy and a lot of it's based on medieval and a lot of it is was um very kind of you know the wizards are going to find the crystals and save the 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 world that is fracturing uh but now you have modern western rpgs like the witcher which is famous i was right about to ask you so we just got through binge watching the Witcher. So where yeah. would that fall under? Uh, so that's a Western RPG. The uh, the Witcher universe is Polish. Okay. Um, so it's from uh, a, a series of Polish um, novels and short stories, and the game series is also from Poland. And they um, they have done a really great job in because Western games are very kind of it's more about a single main character and then a, a a strong supporting cast and you can really see that in the tv adaptation they've done a great job it's 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 very character driven if anything that you know Geralt is fine he's great and you know he's he's a he's big beef cow eating man Cake. but um he uh is surrounded by these 
powerful um, women and uh, and these ultra interesting side characters, and that's really kind of where I get my kicks. I love games that dive into uh, just the the black whites and greys of of morality that that you see in series like that and like and the afterliving like the afterliving exactly things with no real good correct answer <laughs> were you worried i was gonna say no real good <laughs> writing <laughs> no real good dialogue no um yeah well let's let's uh, with that segue let's dive into the afterliving let's um so i want to ask you because we've just been talking about gaming uh, where would you see, or how would you see the afterliving being translated into, you know, a game like Witcher was? Are there a lot of, you know, RPGs with vampires and, you know, werewolves and witches? Yeah. So while Japanese tradition is very kind of mystical and ethereal, the Western tradition is very much more kind of often not so modern, but very medieval kind of monsters, ghouls. There's a lot of kind of demonic and classic horror goth type mm -hmm. influence um so it'd be like and, a wrpg is that what you said they were called like western uh, just western we okay. say jrpg but we say western okay rpgs yeah so um the first after living novel is really a coming of age story right it's it's someone finding out that the world is not as it seems mm -hmm. uh he doesn't know who he is mm -hmm. he is figuring out this whole new perspective on things that he didn't know existed and not really having any clear path of what is wrong or what is right. It's not quite your classic straightforward good versus evil. And that is really where these Western RPGs live. It's in that gray morality. There's no way of knowing how your actions are going to play out. There's no correct answer per se. You're just trying to make what feels like the right decision and hope for the best. And that is the kind of game that I would see After Living being. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. Now, you have a, a really great uh, opportunity now because you have hindsight of going back and having listened to, you know, the other episodes that we've done. And you, you know, had told me yourself that there were certain things that you wished were touched upon uh, more or given i guess more weight yes uh, i've had the rare opportunity to to hear everything that has come before me you know something that i was really curious about listening to the horror episode of the podcast mm -hmm. was the book isn't scary correct it's not there's no i mean uh, uh, how do you describe a jump scare in a novel i don't know but it's um it's not you know, there's no one really being kind of disemboweled big time and like these buildups of, of you know, like the shining, what is going to be behind this this door. There's there's an element of that, but it's, it's not kind of playing on this psychological horror. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested to find out what is the kind of tradition of horror that you're pulling from. Well, I do have a very extensive horror background just because of how I grew up and, and what really, you know, got my blood flowing but i guess when it comes to to the creatures of vampires and werewolves they've are they've always been traditionally seen in the horror genre but i couldn't make this book too much of a horror because that would have a very negative association with what the creatures were or where they originated from and because in my point of view of the story they come from a very you know heavenly and uh, i guess graceful presence I, I couldn't make that be a book that was about jump scares and about you know mm. blood and gore and guts 
Um, I do see it translating in a horror in specific parts mm-hmm. uh, um, when it translates into film and media. But for the purpose of reading it, I didn't want it to be negatively associated um, with their origins, which is why I didn't do it as a horror. But if you were to look into um, some of the scenes taken out of context, some things might seem horrific, like in the baptism when you know you have uh, one of the disciples who is drinking the blood of his future saved and then drowning them in the pool. Mm. That would be a very horrific thing if you were to take it out of context. But if you take it from the point of view of, of Manny and seeing this happen systematically and everybody being okay with it, then it's not a horror. See, the, the scene that sticks in my mind is always Manny drinking the blood of, of Wolfgang and is just kind of consuming this acid that is destroying his soul, basically. And, you know, it's quite an extreme act. Yeah, the little snippets, which, you know, if you don't know the background of it, then yeah, it would be extremely horrific. When you're playing the TV show or the movie of the story in your mind, what is it? I mean, I I almost see this kind of crossover between Buffy and Charmed or or something like that. I mean, where does it sit for you? Well, I was always a huge uh, fan of Vampire Diaries. So there was that whole, you know, young appeal to it. But there was also another show that was Canadian that uh, they made for, I guess, an American version of it, even though it was still shot in Canada, um, called Being Human. Oh, yeah. And mm-hmm. I absolutely loved it because it had, you know, the elements of, like, it was a vampire and a werewolf who were roommates. And, you know, um, I guess a, a ghost was also the, the third roommate. Mm-hmm. So it showed how they all had their own demons to battle with, but they had to live in harmony. And they, it did have some scary points when there were some creatures uh, from their world that were, I guess, not being very civil. But for the most part, it was very real. They were dealing with dating. They were dealing with, you know, holding down a job, holding down relationships. And that's very much where I see the world of the afterliving, but just having a little bit more of like a British culture to it. Mm-hmm. As you're saying that, what's coming into my mind is what links that with Buffy and Charmed and other shows like that that I wasn't even necessarily thinking as I said it is this and same with the with the book this concept of humanizing the demonic so it is a it's it it's kind of these horror archetypes and tropes but it's not coming from a hellish perspective in fact quite the opposite is coming from something very holy what is your your background in you know religion like what informed you when you were reading uh where the creatures came from and and how they were all connected to each other well yeah um that's an interesting point and probably a good segue into talking about the religion episode of the podcast uh, it's interesting listening to um a group of americans talking about this subject because i think the approach and the kind of breadth of experience in religion is still a lot wider in America than it is in the UK. We certainly have a very large religious um, contingent, but for myself, I grew up with not practicing religious parents. I was very encouraged to explore my But they were raised Catholic though, right? My uh, my mother was... uh, raised catholic she went to a catholic school for sure so and and catholic school in the the kind of 60s and 70s so she had the full kind of nuns and sisters experience wrapping them on the knuckles for something bad that they did oh i think there was a lot worse than wrapping on the knuckles definitely but culturally in the media in politics things tend to lean a bit more atheist i feel in the uk uh and so 
my own experience was being encouraged to uh, figure out what I wanted. And certainly I was very curious. My uh, my primary school, where you're between ages 6 and 12, w- was slightly Protestant Christian leaning. We had hymn practice and things like that. And Is that like choir practice? Yeah, yeah. You would get together on a Friday morning and just sing all the, all the classics, you know, all the hits. Mm-hmm. So bec- partly caused by that i was curious i went to i asked my parents to take me to sunday school i did a summer camp as well which i am adamantly tricked me because they put in the brochure that it was going to be about technology and computers (laughs) but just every computer part was like a metaphor for jesus and like the graces that he gives us we'd never used a single computer in that whole thing but (laughs) we I don't know. You can you can see at this point in my life. And that's what honestly turns me away from religion the most. It's when people try to hide what their approach is. I suppose looking back on it, that, that sort of thing leaves a bad taste in my mouth. People do what they have to do. It's almost, it's aspects of it are a business. And that's, that's kind of, that's part of my perspective on organized religion. I think religion, I think spirituality and this I guess, properly answers your question of what's my position. Spirituality is such an important thing for every human to have, however that manifests. If it manifests in Christianity, if it manifests in in Islam, in Buddhism, whatever that means for you, something that grounds you not just to the next plane, to the transcendental plane, but to now and helps you be a better person for whatever that motivation is. And better not in the sense of trying to enforce a specific agenda on someone, but just trying to improve their life, to be well-meaning. Be compassionate. To be, be a good person. Yes. Right? Exactly. That's that's really what's important for me. And if people... Uh, organized religion is a really powerful unifying force, and I think that's that's a really beautiful thing. That's also one thing that sometimes I try to tell people who have had a very bad experience with the church is I you know my my viewpoint is um, the church is people the church is not God so that's where mm-hmm. you should very much make the distinction like if there's a church that has burned you or if there's you know a certain congregation that has made you not feel very welcome or, or just not feel good just remember like that is not God that is people and mm-hmm. their interpretation of of God or whatever you know they see as the higher power mm-hmm. this is probably a good time to ask you then so i know from knowing you personally and talking to you at length about religion and philosophy and the books that this uh part of the journey of writing this series has been your own journey through your exploration and questioning yeah like a reflection of your of your religious beliefs and your faith and the first book is really uh coming to jesus in a sense he's Manny is finding uh, his place within his new faith. I, I, hopefully it's not giving too much away to say that the, the second book is kind of throwing all sorts of spanners in the works and, and, and leading to a questioning of that. It's essentially, you know, if you thought of the After Living series as uh, its own one like movie, then this would be entering Act 2, yeah. which is pretty much where the character's life is turned upside down and what he thought he knew to be true is not true or maybe not the full story mm-hmm. so yeah i mean naturally in the progression of a series this would be the point when you know uh shit starts to hit the fan and he is awakened again to another side of what he thought you know was what he wanted 
Uh-huh. So at this point where you've gone through your own explorations and your own ups and downs and, and kind of asking questions and slowly getting through the other side of that, when you look back now on the place where you were at when you were writing this book, do you feel closer now to that discovering or, or rediscovering phase? Like, do you identify more with Manny in that part? Honestly, I think right now I'm identifying the most with Judas. Right. At the end of the book, when uh-huh. he's telling Manny, Jesus or the afterliving or disciples fear being forgotten. Like, how how is the process of going through that influenced where you are now in the writing process? So the very first book, what I was doing was writing a story for the people in my life who were atheists. And I was trying to, you know, show them uh, what I was believing at the time that I was interacting with them. Mm -hmm. And I think right now what uh, the second book is going to end up being is writing a story to myself. So it's, it's, it's more communicating to myself uh, what are you thinking now? And because, you know, I, with, with, any, with any story, there's a lot of research involved. And like, I've done a lot of research into, you know, religions and, and how um, a lot of religions are kind of parallel to what we call mythology, which, you know, at the time, people uh, called it religion to them. Yep. So it's kind of how it's always, um, I guess, evolving. And right now, I'm really writing a story to myself as kind of pompous as that may sound. But, you know, we all have our own things that we need to work out. And writing is an amazing therapy. And the second book is definitely getting out a lot of my, I guess, therapy in terms of where I am in my spiritual walk of, of having to think for myself and not thinking um, in terms of what the culture around me has told me I should think. So the first book is trying to bring people in. The second book is turning inwards. And then do you know what the conclusion is of of the story that you're telling yourself. I think the message is that you really have to destroy something to build it up a proper way. Because I feel like we're all given a wonderful mold of what we should be and how we should think about things. And once we actually get very close to achieving that, then you start to realize that there are chinks in the armor that you really need to work out. And it's just best to just knock it all down and start from scratch because you know what you've done wrong in the past uh, in terms of how you've thought or how you have trained yourself to think. And you can be better informed to make decisions for yourself. Cause I, I find religion to be a very subjective thing when you start to really think about it. Um, you know, like not what is my mom, what is my, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, um, priest want me to think it's what do I need to think to help me get closer to the image that other people are getting closer to. Or maybe it's a different image. I mean, that sounds to me like don't believe everything you read in the papers. Don't don't just take something at face value. Take it, break it down like you say, and think about it for yourself. Figure out what it means to you. Well, it's kind of like how they say, you know, learn the rules and then break them. Right. And that's essentially what um, Manny is is going to be doing in the second book is he's going to be learning all the rules of the path that he's chosen, and then he's going to have to break them to find out what he really needs in his life to help him go on um, sustaining himself, you know, for eternity, so to speak. So this leads me to the question that was asked in the religion episode, and I felt I I could feel this 
answer burning inside me when you asked the question, how would you sell this book that is has very strong um, religious themes to an atheist or to someone like myself, very spiritual, more on the agnostic line? And I didn't feel, I thought there were great answers, but didn't hit it on, hit the nail on the head where I wanted. So I want you to ask me that question. Mr. Mike Hoffman, how would you sell this book differently to an atheist than to a um, Christian? Or would you sell it differently to them? Oh, I'm so glad you asked me that question, Fernando. Thank you. <laughs> if I was trying to, if I was talking one-on-one to a friend of mine who was very either non-religious or even anti-religious, I would say, actually, you know, I think I said this to my mum, who had this experience of growing up in the Catholic school and kind of being very turned off by that. She's gone through a similar experience. And I said to her, this is the author taking his relationship with religion and his own questions and exploring that through his writing. It's an arc. It's coming to figure out what, faith actually means to him and along with all the questions that come with that it's not just a a kind of matter of blind faith and as someone who is not um directly religious myself i find that so interesting it's so fascinating and it's so encouraging to me to know that there are plenty of people with faith out there who are questioning their own faith and not not destroying it but building it into something more bespoke for themselves well that's a great question that i have that that leads me to a great question for you in that you being identifying more as agnostic than you do as a believer in any kind of organized religion what does faith mean to you faith to me i have a very strong faith in humanity and myself not to say not not to uh you know i i am far from any kind of uh god or religious figure but i think that it's important in life to make other people happy i don't personally have a belief that there is a meaning to life i think that we're all here i think it's the happiest accident that we are here it's 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 one in a billion billion you know it's this crazy phenomenon that we we are all here but i'm not trying to get to the next plane or achieve transcendence you know i identify with buddhism but i'm not superstitious so i don't think that i'm going to be reincarnated eternally unless i just get it right one time so at the end of the day, all there is for me is to be happy and try and have a content life. That's I, not easy. No, it's not easy. But it gets a lot harder if the people around me are also not happy. So my motivation to be a good person is not because uh, my faith, you know, the the doctrine that I subscribe to is saying you should uh, give to your neighbor and you should not covet. I personally, I feel... I should do and not do those things because it makes the world easier for other people to be in. And if they're feeling a little bit better tomorrow, then they might say to the next person, how are you doing? I hope you're okay. And then that cheers them up. And then it goes on a whole big cycle. The city or the country gets a little bit, just 0.2% happier and sunnier. And that eventually comes back around to me. I think I, I think that that is a true kind of karma force in real life terms. Also something that I would like to touch on that I really appreciate about you is that in your own company, you're very much involved in you know LGBTQ 
I don't want to say tolerance, but I want to say acceptance. Well, I want here, to say... We call it uh, respect and inclusion. Okay. Yeah. And that's kind of, I think that's a corporate term that's really catching on far as I've been by no means uh, unique to my... Are they a respected firm. class in the UK? Because in, in America, we have very strict laws, at least California does, about um, you know not discriminating in the workplace against uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, things like that. Is that something that... Is we, there a law for that here or how oh, does that work? Absolutely. Uh, California, I have to say, is the the closest to Europe by far. In some in some ways, uh, Californian law even exceeds Europe. We don't have uh, First Amendment rights to free speech, for example. You cannot call someone a slur or decide that you are going to speak out against them and the way that they are just because you don't agree that being part of the LGBT plus community is wrong. You can have enlightened debate, but we have very specific laws against hate speech, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so sexuality uh, is one of those things. Gender identity is one of those things, along with race, religion, creed, disability, um, uh, neurodiversity, all, all sorts. Circling back to uh, respect and inclusion in the workplace, it's um, yeah, it's something very important to me to to make sure that LGBT plus and maybe let's talk about acronyms. So I know that when something in your podcast episode about this was um you were talking about lgbtq i tend to go for lgbt plus i think something that's so beautiful about our community is it really is an umbrella i mean i have plenty of straight friends that i would include in this lgbt plus banner a lot of the specific issues apply more to myself as a gay man q in that plus or q is the plus because i get confused so ask any person of the community you'll get a different response to me q kind of is a letter included in the plus q is q is for queer as they teach you in nursery school. Yes, as Cookie Monster. We'll, yes. We'll, we'll teach the children in hopefully, you know, a couple more years. And for me, queer is actually when I'm talking to other members of the community or close friends, family, queer is the word that increasingly I gravitate towards because it encapsulates not just people of a different sexuality, not just people um, who have gender uh, differences, people who are not part of our normal binary world, but everyone that that is a little more transgressive in in that sort of way. Any, everyone who's a little more uh, alternative. Uh, one eye-opening example for me was in the second season of Dragula, which is the kind of alternative drag competition TV show. One of the most bizarre queens on there, Disasterina, uh, was actually a straight married man, is my understanding. Anyway. Oh, wow. But very kind of, very uh, cross-dressy, very like loves sort of jewels and and adornments uh on her drag and is very much just what i would consider a queer person that's their life that's their world and it's not for me to say because you're straight and cisgendered you are not queer you are part of our community i i get very nervous about the kind of terminology that i should use because you know i don't have very many trans friends i don't have very many friends um who have, who have come out as non-binary so 
I am not exposed to that as much as I feel that I should be, um, which is, to me, I feel like it's kind of a disadvantage in how the world is changing and how media is changing to include all of these different people. Well, you're right. It's Inclusion is important. Visibility is an important thing. And we have a problem right now where the people writing for media, the people making decisions about what gets seen are very much of certain groups. I know you as uh, an actor, a Latino actor in Hollywood, are very aware of when Latino parts are being written by white staff and the lack of real-world representation that that presents. Mm -hmm. One thing that you did, you know, that we have spoken about um, and where I think that you and I differ from culturally, and even within the States, I differ from culturally, is the word queer. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to the all-encompassing community, I'm very okay with the word queer. But when it comes to me as an individual, I'm not quite okay with the word queer because where I grew up in Texas, um, queer was never a good word. And, you know, even to mean strange, I don't like... Like I, I've I've often heard of the word queer, you know, used as, as a synonym for strange, mm -hmm. and I don't like being called queer because to me that means I'm being called strange. And also, you know, there was a very uh, common, a uh, pretty brutal game that you used to play as kids called smear the queer, right? Which pretty much means anybody. It's kind of like rugby. Anybody who has the ball, like you, tackle their ass to the ground. So in my head, when I hear queer, I hear smear the queer, mm -hmm. and I think, nope, I am not queer. I am gay. Thank you very much. Well, here's uh, another interesting fact uh, about myself. I came of age as a kind of goth punk emo kid. So I was strange. I was, I thought that my friends and I were the coolest people around and most people didn't see us that way, but that was where I found my strength. I, f I came into my character being very alternative, very different and really pulling from the strengths that, come with that so now when i reflect on myself as being a, a gay man and being someone that is not afraid to to dress differently to speak out against about issues that uh, a lot of people feel uncomfortable still speaking out about i recognize that in the world that i exist that unfortunately is strange and it is different, but I think that that's a really amazing thing and it makes me feel really proud mm -hmm. to be different in those ways. And I, I, I recognize that it's hard. And again, ask a different person, you'll get a different answer. A lot of people do have very strong negative connotations, scarring even associated to that word. Yeah. So it might not... <laughs> Present company included. Yeah. It yeah. might not be for everyone. But... On that topic of representation, in your book, The mm -hmm. After Living, yeah. don't know if you've heard of it. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's been a it's minute. It's a far memory. Uh, you, there are, let's say, members of the community. I don't know if I don't. I don't think specific terms are ever given, are they? For um, for Tom and you mean Gabriel and Wolfgang. No, Shit. Tom. Spoiler Tom. alert! Sorry. Um, no, Tom is one of the queer characters in the book, which yes. I, I touched on in one of the, the past uh, podcast, one of the LGBTQ podcast. Okay, that's he fine. Is and just and I, yet to be outed. Um, fine, I feel better about that. Then I haven't, yeah. I haven't given away a spoil. I was just thinking now, where did I learn that from? No, uh, no. But so, so for the um, the two male characters that mm -hmm. are in a relationship 
they do not have their own kind of identity defined in text, I believe. Is that right? Uh, they were a couple. Yes. Yes. But they were not... I don't know that the word gay is in there. I'm trying to think. I think, because uh, I've, I've written, you know, I've written that part in so many drafts, but as sure. far as reading it back, I don't think the word gay was used, but I think, um, uh, I think Manny just says, uh, that's who we're meeting, and that's kind of how he just, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a trend that we're hopefully moving more and more towards, and something that I really would have if I had had the chance to be in the LGBT uh, plus episode of the podcast, we'd have loved to have spoken about is increasing just normalization of factors like this in media. Schitt's Creek, for an example, mm-hmm. where both and many other people we know Brilliant obsessed show. with this yes. show. Firstly, no one in this, in this uh, backwater community has any remotest issue with anyone having an alternative sexuality, identity, whatever. But also, and I mean, you'd even think that Moira can be sometimes a drag queen on her, on her own. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I was reading an article just today about how most of the, um, or a large number of attendees to conventions and, and uh, sort of signings and things relating to the show show up in what the cast refer to as Moira drag. So there you go. That's great. Um, there are a couple of instances, you know, David is identified as pansexual, which is not something that is, I think, a very well-known term. But I appreciate that in that show, there is not an overemphasis and an over-reliance on defining everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just these people are who these people are, and that's the end of the story. And someone may have been with, so Patrick, for example, was with women in the past. He was he engaged. Is, he he was engaged. He is now um, with the main character, David. And it's kind of a non-issue. He is who he is. And so that was something that I appreciated in the afterliving. The, the two male characters in a relationship, there's not a strong, there's not a heavy-handed definition of what this means for them as people. They talk about the issues in a real way, but the issues really are that they're from different, totally different warring communities. Well, not that they're gay or whatever they happen to be. This also might be a spoiler. I don't know if it is or not. It's probably a spoiler. But um, Wolfgang has kids. Right. So Wolfgang clearly had a, uh, I guess, a, a more heterosexual relationship before he met Gabriel. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is something that, you know, does not come up. And and I, I didn't want, again, I, I wanted the idea of faiths not matching up to be at the root of what the conflict was versus, you know, something like, oh, they're gay, that they're, then they're, you know, not supposed to be a part of this community kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, it, it was never about a sexual attraction. It was never about um, anything that had to do with gender identity. It was a soulmate. And souls are asexual as far as I'm concerned. Right. Um, so that's pretty much where that, you know, came from. Preach, can I get an amen, etc. That was beautiful. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, but you do have a problem with one of the relationships uh, in the book. Actually, the main relationship, you have a huge problem with that. And I think you could not say enough things to go against everybody's, uh, uh, I guess, rooting for the, the main couple. Okay, well, let's not <laughs> say everybody, because can I rewind for a second? You can rewind for a second. Matt Steele is my spirit animal. Oh, I can't with you. You guys just go out already. I'm and over it. that was 
further and further solidified with every episode. It seemed like in almost every word he was echoing so many of my thoughts and being m- my ma- my nemesis. Matt got a bit of let's say the creeps from Lucy. Well, from the disciples in general, he just was not about them. But yes, from Lucy. I even though he wants to play Lucy in the series adaptation. <laughs> well, of course, and he would be perfect. Shut up. He's not going to play her. I remember Matt saying in an earlier episode that he had this kind of sense of distrust for Lucy. You know, she she had been lying, I suppose you would say, protecting Manny from the truth. And right at the very end, it's kind of this bombshell. She is a, she is an apostle. You can, you can, yeah, this is this is the last one. So if people haven't gotten it, then they're spoilers. <laughs> um, she has a, a different identity. She was known to Manny in very early life as a totally different person. Um, I, I have to say, the thought of someone who, thousands of years old, uh, thousands I, of years old aside, but let's say forty year old. How old? How old was was the character originally when when Manny was a child? Uh, in the seventies. Right. 70s, okay. So yeah. so imagine. Your 70-year-old nanny best friend mm-hmm. puts on the skin of a six-year-old and just climbs into bed with okay, you for creepy. midnight this not, snacks. This is not Buffalo Bill. She's not putting on freaking skins. She is getting younger. I mean, there's <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Um, or, okay, imagine, imagine well, a six-year-old like, just... with, the, with the knowledge and understanding of a... <laughs> You're waiting for me to creep out. I'm not getting creeped out because I wrote this and that they're Almas and that's how it's going to be. Okay. Um, but think of it this way also, like, you know, uh, Manny had, what, 70 years of life experience as he was interacting with Lucy, the, you know, while he was a child living at uh, Stockton Estate. Right. So, I mean, there comes a certain point where, you know, age should become just a number. And I think at the age of 70, it can become just a number. So... I mean, where are we on, on Lucy? Is she Has she been uh, this protecting, nurturing figure? Is she misleading? I mean, what's the, what's the intent behind this character? And is there uh, a kind of... Is there an arc of her now showing Manny what he means to her and what his place is in her world? Because right now, it feels to me like she is this all-knowing master of things who has kind of led this person for her own means. So where does that put the two of them, the balance in in their relationship? First of all, I think this displays that Lucy has probably one of the strongest uh, faiths uh, in the entire book because she's been waiting, what, 2,000 years for this person to finally be, you know, of age physically and mentally to make a decision that she does not force him into making. Right. Um, And also, you know, you have to think about, about it this way, is that she was essentially given a message, you know, from the sire, to wait for someone and mm. that's what she's been doing you know i mean that's that's really the easiest and most simple way that i can break it down and i can say the same um for you know judas he has been waiting for manny for a very long time to help him i guess reach the next level that he needs to reach which for him is is you know mortality mm. um so really all i can see or when i was writing them all i could see was the idea of faith and um delayed gratification but not in like you know not gratification <laughs> in a gross way just in the in the <laughs> in the completion of one's journey but again you know one thing that i do want to touch on in, is that finding one's soulmate is not 
you know, finding one's alma is not the completion of their journey. It's literally a bonus. I think they they may well be almas and soulmates, but when someone turns out to be something so different from what you thought, there's an adjustment period. And you have to ask yourself, is the core of you who I thought you are? Is it the details, the superfluous details around the outside that are different? Um, but can I trust you at your core? So what does Lucy have to do to gain his trust in your eyes? Um, it would probably take some sort of sacrifice. I mean, Christianity and Catholicism is not short on sacrifice and sacrificial metaphors. And I think it takes some sort of real giving because it seems like a, a, a bit of a taking relationship at this point from, from Lucy's perspective. And I think it's going to take some real giving, some real selfless giving back on her part beyond de-aging and, and kind of starting fresh with them but really on on a on a very fundamental level saying uh this is what i'm willing to do for you because you are my soulmate something that really struck me as a british person reading this book set in britain was the constant references to cctv because we don't i mean yes okay if you go into let's say the news agents, kind of the like what a New Yorker might call a bodega, like a a a, a little shop that does like Seven Eleven. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. So a little shop that does like chocolate bars and chips and magnets. You might see a sign saying "Smile, you're on CCTV." Are you kidding me? They're everywhere in this city. The signs or the cameras, the CCTV signs. Okay, see, I, it might just be something that I don't see. You're blind to it because anymore. you see it so much. But I feel like we don't have. Yes, they say London is one of the world's most surveilled cities. Is the world's most surveyed city. But I feel like in all other cities, there are still cameras on many corners, if not necessarily most or all corners. And uh, I was so surprised to see this imposing presence of CCTV uh, in the book and the the feeling that it was almost uh, suffocating at, at times. I mean, is that something that you've felt being in London? I mean, do you feel like there's just this constant oppressive uh, presence watching you? Well, I don't think of it that way because <laughs> the way that I look at it is that if you're not doing anything that you should be guilty about, then you shouldn't be worried about being surveilled. <laughs> but if you're doing something wrong, then maybe it might be an overbearing you know, presence because you can't quite get away with it we're probably just as surveilled in los angeles but it's just never been put to our attention like maybe smile you're on camera when you're approaching somebody's apartment door right but other than that it's it's very rare that you see cctv i did start noticing cctv signs specifically in los angeles after uh, my trip here back in 2014 okay which i thought was just very unique because i had never noticed one before when i think of cctv i think of Yes, you don't have anything necessarily in this moment to worry about if you're not doing anything wrong. But if one day, say, a government had a file on me of just movements that I've made and they decide that my lifestyle or something that I've done is no longer to their taste, say we have some kind of radical change, and then there's all of this information there. Is there a similar thing going on with the conduits? The conduits become a huge presence in book two because um, Manny is starting to realize how all of the higher powers are interconnected. 
because you know they do have to have some kind of a relationship with the living because the higher ups in living in parliament for instance can't be oblivious to what's going on which is why you know starkly it, he he's you know he works for for defra and mm. that's just something that is kind of peppered in there but you know that there's some kind of knowledge uh between all the communities and so what i'm getting at with that is that there are monitoring parties because there is some kind of order that has to be kept um, in the afterliving or even just within these communities. So there is a faction of conduits that does, you know, watch over, I guess, the, the populations, but also there is a, a certain, I guess, faction of disciples that have a more governmental authority over the community than, you know, uh, just a regular religious kind of authority over the community. It seems like book two is where we're going to find a lot more societal themes. Yes. Where we've got uh, because, like you, representations said, of government. Because, like you touched on before, uh, it, the idea of you know church being a business, mm-hmm. and very much so, you know, just because uh, these disciples have supernatural abilities, it does not exclude them from still having that, I guess, frame of mind to be uh, a business and have separate classes in the society. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's that's where a lot of the CCTV comes from um especially because you know the conduits get their powers from disciples so clearly they would like to know where disciples are where maybe the stronger ones are and one thing that is following manny in this book is that certain turquoise eye Mm -hmm. and he doesn't quite know who it comes from that that kind of lends to the paranoia uh that you might feel with cctv right um but yeah there there is a, a, a an intelligence gathering presence in the book that kind of serves to keep the order or the appearance of order in you know the world right so something exciting to look forward to yes book two. so speaking of book two now that the book has been out for a little while and you know you've done this podcast we've had a recap and you're looking forward to the next stage what is this process of reflection taught you and what are you now excited about putting into the rest of the series going forward um, I think the rest of the series is going to be breaking down the afterliving more and more and more to get to the core of what the purpose of having, you know, these supernatural powers is all about and why everybody is so linked. Now, I've yet to tell anybody where the silver cats come from, but it does very much link into, you know, the Lycane Disciple um, chain, mm-hmm. just like the conduits do. What are you excited about that has kind of come from this podcast process? how it's been received and how people have seen, um, have, have kind of drawn from their own life experience and have projected certain, you know, struggles or, or for such a fantasy setting, it's quite a real, it's a, it's an identifiable story. Thank you for saying that. That's a huge compliment to me because all I was doing is identifying how I connected to the religion and, and the experiences of people that I've had, like I've had, you know, a Micah in my life. I clearly have had a Mina in my life and, um, as far as a Lucy, not quite I've had her in my life yet, but there's always been that, you know, whole idea of some epic love story that knows no bounds. Um, so it's nice to know that by having and writing about a human experience that it's, you know, connecting to other people's human experiences, yeah. um, you know, whether they're agnostic, whether they're, uh, they're Baptist or, or Catholic or, you know, um, gay, straight, however you want to see it. Um, and I'm actually very much looking forward to straying more and more away from the religious aspect and connecting more to the uh, the survival aspect and you know the the um i guess 
power aspect of right. what religion inevitably leads to in certain mm-hmm. societies. Got it. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to write it. And, you know, I, I, I would love to write the books faster. That's something that I definitely get on my case about because, <laughs> you know, there are authors who write a book a year and, you know, who, who have probably written five or six books by, by this time it's taken me to write the second one. But at the same time, like, I can't really rush it when mm-hmm. something is good is good and when it's not, it's not. And I... And I think when something is pooling from your personal experience and it's mirroring a journey that you're going through yourself, you have to go through that journey to be able to channel it out onto the page. Yeah, and you describe it as self-therapy. And also a portion of the next book will take place in 2000, because this book takes place in 2015. Uh-huh. So a portion of the book will take place in 2016. And I right. like to kind of mirror real life events in some shape or form, which is why they have the Discarnate Treaty, which took place around World War II. And so in 2016... You know, we had number 45 elected to office. And so that is clearly something that would reflect in, you know, the culture of what's going on in the States. Mm-hmm. And a lot of big political movements, wars, crusades, things like that, reflect something with a religious undertone in the afterliving. It's exciting to be able to draw from real life and put my own spin on those things. But again, this all just kind of happens with time. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless you have any more questions, that is bringing us to the end of the podcast. Well, are we doing quick fire? That's what I was going to say. It's, oh uh, it's called rapid fire in the States. Oh, rapid fire questions, yeah. Mr. Mike Hoffman. Oh my God. Which one would you pick? Disciple, conduit, or lycane? <sighs> okay. Um, I feel like, I think lycanes because they're not so much following dogma, pun intended, uh, as they are just trying to do the right thing for themselves, for their pack. Okay. Sire saved an Alma. Oh my God! Who do I want to sire? Oh, 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 oh! Like um, Patrick Stewart. Ooh, yeah. A little pervy, a little, little suave, a little, a little pervy. classy. That's just because you watched extras <laughs> the other week. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and you're saved. Oh, my saved. Who would I want to save? I was gonna see my brother. I don't want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'm not even a fan, but I'm gonna say like Taylor Swift. <gasps> I feel like Tay-tay? she just needs a little bit of support and love and you know she's got she's she has her feuds and she has her bad um, blood she has her bad blood and she has her business shit going on but she makes this brilliant music and she's got this higher meaning and she's getting distracted she needs a bit of that caring attention to get her on the straight and narrow and just focus in what really really matters jesus yeah i got it jesus <laughs> and alma oh alma ah uh, can i just say jake gyllenhaal he's good in everything okay sure <laughs> yeah yeah i think of bubble boy whenever you say whatever oh jake really gyllenhaal. yeah that's i, I know he's i think done you're maybe the only person in the world I think that bubble think boy. still thinks of bubble boy when yeah. they say jake gyllenhaal and that wraps up our final bonus episode of blood sweat and silver the podcast about the after living oh bittersweet moment i, I thought you were going to be doing a werewolf oh yeah no that was me just getting into the swing getting of things, into the seeing okay. if my answer was correct oh now you're ready great uh thank you mike hoffman for being uh the last guest for the podcast thank you fernando installment of the podcast for being the author oh of this installment <laughs> of the series you're welcome thank you guys so much for listening again the after living book one of his blood and silver series is available on amazon uh, in paperback on kindle on audible check it out if you haven't and look for book two in the coming year 2020 and if you've read the book and you've enjoyed the podcast 
Go ahead and write a review. I cannot wait to hear what you guys think. I'd like to thank the Academy, <laughs> my parents, the writer. The, he's amazing. And Edith Dunstan. <laughs>